Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular prospect writers filling us in on what they've been thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in July. Writer and sex worker Tilly Lawless was re-evaluating her relationship with money, while farmer Tom Martin was defending his excessive screen time. He spends more than five hours a day on his phone. Former England cricket captain Mike Brearley was reflecting on the break he took from cricket in his 20s, while Sarah Collins, who suffers with OCD, was annoying her friends by trying to convert them to mindfulness. This month, sports journalist Emma John writes in praise of Gareth Southgate, Ben Stokes, and their attitude towards self-criticism in sport, while Anglican priest Alice Goodman wrestles with the shame of abuse in the church. Meanwhile, Jen Zia, Alice Garnett, spends a day without her phone after losing it in an Uber after a wild night out, while actor Sheila Hancock mourns the loss of a gold necklace with great sentimental value. But let's begin with Anglican priest Alice Goodman, who explains why the church must own its legacy of abuse. How far back do you want to go? I can remember being taught to pray as soon as I learned to speak. When I was five, Rabbi Martin laid his clean pink hands on my head and blessed me. He blessed every child in the class so that we would each feel special. The memory stuck with me so that now when parents bring their children up to the altar rail, I try to make it special. I take my time, praying that they'll know God's love and grow into the gifts God has given them wisdom, truth, courage, and more. I pray that they'll be protected on their adventures. What I don't do anymore is lay my hands on their heads. In this anecdote, you can glimpse the way safeguarding has become part of our life in the parish. The cultural apparatus includes criminal record checks for staff and volunteers, posters in and around the churches, a link to the parish's safeguard and commitment statements on the homepage of every website, and the vigilant presence of the benefice safeguarding officer. When I first arrived in Cambridgeshire, we'd go to Ely for our safeguarding courses. You could see how necessary they were, because there was always someone who'd grumble that girls of 12 looked 18 nowadays, and that a man couldn't be expected to know the difference or that some marriages were naturally like Punch and Judy shows, and some women liked it that way. The courses are now rolled out online by the Church of England. They're not as good, but a kindly friend who's a magistrate explained that their real purpose was to make sure no one could claim ignorance. As you click from one scenario and set of simple questions to another, you think, I'm sure Ben Field would have clinched safeguarding. That's Benfield the murderer, played by Anna Hardwick in The Sixth Commandment, Sarah Phelps's dramatisation of the events in Maids Morton. Prospect's own Sheila Hancock had a stellar role as larky centenarian Liz Zettel, the next mark on Fields' list of potential victims. Most of The Sixth Commandment was too harrowing for me to watch. That being said... I think it should be required viewing for the Church's safeguarding courses and in theological colleges, and maybe even for the Archbishop's Council. Let's all be harrowed. Yes, I know that every single faith is infected with the abuse of power, sexual abuse and spiritual abuse, bullying. So are the scouts, 
the other uniformed organizations, the BBC and the world of organized sports, together with every other realm where people trust and submit themselves to others. Institutions that people persist in treating with the reverence that we owe to sentient beings. What's so harrowing in the Sixth Commandment is the painstaking accuracy of the depiction of vulnerability and trust and the cruelty of its exploitation. The Church doesn't like thinking of itself as an institution. It's the body of Christ in the world, we say. And I say it too. It's the bride of Christ, if you're high, and the people, not the building, if you're low. The Church is also Father Alan Griffin, who hanged himself after unsubstantiated malicious gossip in the Diocese of London turned into a safeguarding skipfire. It's the late John Smith and those who suffered the sadism he dealt out in the name of Christ, and those who have ensured that the Church of England's report on his abuses has still not been made public. It's the young men at Soul Survivor, Watford, who alleged that they were oiled up and massaged and wrestled with and discarded and never spoken of again. It's Peter Ball, and it's the unfair treatment meted out to Martin Percy and the late George Bell. It's the wives with finger marks around their necks, who believe that they must submit and forgive, and the husbands who are assured that they are the head and ruler of their families. It's the old lady in the hospital bed, whose parents told her 80 years ago that she was a dirty, wicked liar to say that father would ever touch her like that. And it's the priest who blighted that little girl's life. It's the bishops wanting to do what's right and feeling bound by the church's lawyers and insurers to do whatever will keep our rickety, sinful show on the road a few years longer. It's the survivors of abuse in the church who've been instructed to tell their stories yet again to someone new, whom they have no reason to trust. It's the Ben Fields of this world and the Peter Farkas. The Church likes to refer to itself as she, a person, not an institution. But it's an institution, all right. For those of us who were told once that everything we did was to be done for the glory of God, it's an institution whose shame we bear. And so I've stopped laying my hands on the children who come up to be blessed, counting on a spark of the Holy Spirit to jump the gap between us. In his column this month, farmer Tom Martin sends us dispatches from behind the scenes of filming on Countryfile. I was delighted to be invited to host the Harvest episode of Countryfile this year. We filmed the episode in August, which is without doubt the busiest month on the farm. Now, Striking the balance between filming the harvest and bringing it in was always going to be a challenge. And so I thought I'd offer you a little insight into life both in front of and behind the camera. Firstly, I was struck during the planning phase by how meticulous the BBC team are. They were careful that nothing was mocked up for television and wanted to capture real life in fine detail. If it happens on the farm, it goes in the show. Each episode has its own focus. And I recall standing in the middle of a field of wheat on the team's planning visit with the researcher Joe and director Mark discussing the theme. And we worked together to develop the theme from their original proposal of technology to arrive at one that felt more fitting, community. Harvest is the time when farming families, the local community and supporting industries come together with a core aim, to bring in the harvest and go home safely. On our farm, we work with neighboring farmers who run a local grain store, 
who share the burden of storing, drying and cleaning the grain if necessary. And we couldn't do it without them. And this year, we have two young harvest staff. I call them my chickens on account of them having impossibly skinny legs. At the ages of 18 or 19, we don't get everything right, but I wouldn't change their youthful enthusiasm for anything and we couldn't harvest without such dedicated workers. We also have great non-farming neighbours who, as well as understanding the late-night traffic that the season brings, have alerted us to SKP sheep, a broken taillight, and the presence of someone up to no good in the small hours. Again, we just couldn't manage without them. Harvest isn't simply about rumbling combines and jumbo-sized tractors pulling trailers full of grain. We also have lovely Simon the beekeeper extracting honey from hives dotted around our fields of wildflowers and buckwheat. We have neighbours picking delicious blueberries and my wife, Lisa, runs our community garden growing all manner of fresh vegetables here at Village Farm. Harvest involves this whole community. And so it was with great pleasure that we hosted the Country File team for a couple of days to give them a window into our world and we found them to be their own little community coming together to get the work done. The question you are no doubt eager to ask is what were the presenters like? And that's what I wanted to know as well. Would there be prima donnas flouncing from trailer to makeup to deliver their scripted lines? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint those of you looking for juicy gossip, but they were a pleasure to have around. And when Adam Henson joined me on the Combine Harvester, he was the first out of the cab in hot, dusty conditions to clear any blockage and inspect for breakages. You can take a farmer like Adam away from his farm, but you can't take the farmer out of Adam. It is late August, as I write, and television's visit is a mere memory. Fortunately, it created little disruption to our harvest beyond some short delays and the necessity of wearing the same clothes for two scorching days running. Farmers are divided about country file. Some prize the opportunity to beam into the nation's homes every week, whereas others feel it doesn't represent the interests of agriculture at all. I know that after my appearance, I'll receive some attention from those keyboard warriors, even in the farming communities. So why do we do it? Well, ours is an industry that I'm proud to be a part of, and it's a pleasure to show people why they can be proud to buy British produce. With Harvest, finished now for another year and the Combine parked away carefully for her long winter rest, what was once a time of celebration gives way to the post-harvest rush to get next year's crops sown. And as the days shorten, we're already beginning to dream of next year's harvest. For actor and writer Sheila Hancock, a lost necklace is more than just a comforting keepsake. I have never been one for wearing jewellery. If I have a posh do to attend that demands a bit of glitz, I borrow some diamonds from a shop in Burlington Arcade. But I have worn one piece almost constantly throughout the years, an antique golden chain on which I've hung reminders of lost loved ones. My mother's wedding ring, my dad's signet ring, and gold bands that represent my two marriages. Embracing my neck, they have accompanied me whenever something celebratory or sad happened in my life. I have, I know not how, recently lost this comforting keepsake and I am shocked by how bereft I have felt. This absent gold chain has come to represent a general feeling of loss that comes with old age. Is she still alive has become a regular query when talking of old friends. 
my hearing, my sight, my balance and my memory are all in need of apparatuses or strategies to stem the pace of their exit. In the wider world, with its AI, climate change, gender identity, life for everyone has become a whirligig of loss and change. I recently visited a town I used to live near called Malmesbury. Because people more often shop online or at big out-of-town stores these days, the high street is now full of charity shops and gaping holes with notices that bid goodbye with heavy heart after years of trading. One big shop called Knees used to stock everything. My husband once searched John Lewis for what we call a sink tidy, a triangular shaped tray with holes to put in the sink for receiving tea leaves. No, sir, with waste disposal units, nobody stocks those anymore. Knees did, but they and several other shops have gone. The high street is dead. I went into the abbey, hoping for a quiet moment, only to find the pews all gone and a busy shop and cafe in their place. Jesus would, I suspect, have been a bit cross at the transformation of his temple. But of course, it is sensible use of a big church that is no longer needed and my nostalgia is misplaced. But what, I wonder does an elderly resident of Malmesbury make of all these changes in their lifestyle and environment? Among my friends of all ages, I feel a sense of bewilderment. A young woman of 25 told me the other day that she was really frightened of the future. And where do we find a vision and plan to deal with that fear? Where is the leadership? Attlee, Churchill... Iraq war notwithstanding, Blair, Thatcher, I suppose, Gandhi, Pankhurst and my dad. We are lost and confused. With the right leaders, we could use our superb human skills and the impotence of these new challenges to create a magnificent future. But what have we got instead? Tin pot revolutionaries and murderous dictators abound worldwide. And we are led at home by incompetent politicians without any semblance of a moral compass. Classic examples are Matt Hancock, the feeble-minded, craven namesake of mine who ended up eating a camel's penis, and the woman who destroyed the economy in a few days but still pops up to give us advice. Then there is another woman, lead worshipper at the shrine of the tousled Torag, who set out to destroy the BBC, Channel 4 and the arts and is sulking because she wasn't made a peer for her efforts. However, in this depressing column, I want to tell you of one positive event. I found on eBay a gold chain bearing rings. It wasn't mine, but it seemed an apposite replacement. My daughter tried to bid for it in an auction, but it all went too fast. I traced the person who won and asked if they would let me have it. I discovered that the necklace had been given to the successful bidder by his parents when he was a child. 
It was stolen in a burglary 34 years ago and he had been looking for it ever since. Well, I have not got 34 years, but with those that I have left, I must endeavour to replace the pain of loss with hope. After the break, we'll hear more from our Family of Lives columnists. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Both Sheila and Gen Zia Alice Garnett are on a mission to retrieve lost items after Alice left her phone in an Uber. One morning last month, my friend woke up to a text. Hi Em, Alice left her phone in the Uber and we came to mine. She's sleeping now. Uber driver contacted me saying he'll meet us tomorrow to give the phone back. Sleep well, my one night stand. I awoke that morning in a beige, sparse room as sunlight flooded through the window onto the mattress. Not bed, mattress, on which I had spent the night with a lovely young waiter. The waiter has in fact made an appearance in this column before. I wrote about him in April, after an evening at the NED, the illustrious members only club where he works, led me to reflect on my love-hate relationship with London. I returned to the NED last month with my former neighbour and favourite entrepreneur Cheryl, who took my best friends and I out to see Calice perform on their rooftop to celebrate my friend's 24th birthday. We were riding an absolute high of champagne as the sun set over the London skyline and we spiralled further into debauchery, huffing poppers, vapes and partaking in what my friends call baby birding, an activity which involves spitting alcohol into one another's mouths. The juxtaposition between the prestige of the location and the depravity of our behaviour was not lost on us. And it was only right that I should be reunited with the waiter with whom I had shared a passionate kiss all those months ago. His shift didn't finish until 3am, so my friend and I kept ourselves busy until it was time for her to see me off into the early morning light as I clambered into an Uber with my lover. Could you pass me my phone? Whenever I wake up in an unfamiliar location next to an unfamiliar body, I know that before anything else, I must text my friends to let them know I am alive and well. You don't remember. Remember what? I had left my phone in the Uber. I let out a groan, cupping my aching head in my sweaty palms. It's okay though, the driver has it, I called him. We can get it back later today. God bless the kindness of waiters from the Ned. What if my friends think I'm dead? It's okay, you got me to text them. They know where you are. All was well. He went to shower. I lay motionless on his floor mattress. With no phone to keep me occupied, I was forced to confront the space that I was in. I reflected on the night, piecing what I could together from the few fragmented memories I had. Suddenly, I remembered that I'd given my number to several others. 
I was itching to know whether they texted me back. But it was nice to feel unplugged from the digital world. I was temporarily relieved from the 24-7 duty of answering calls and text messages, free from the shackles of social media that kept me perpetually confronted with the perfect faces, strong opinions and enviable lifestyles of others. The relief soon gave way to a wave of vulnerability. I was alone, on the other side of London, with a man I'd met twice and exchanged little but bodily fluids with. Granted, he was lovely. He arranged for me to pick my phone up from the Uber driver at a designated time and location. He texted my friend to let her know I was okay. He bought me brunch. After I devoured some delicious and paid for hash browns, my partner in crime dropped me off at the nearest tube station. All I can say is, thank God my London literacy is strong enough to get me from west to east with relative ease. But barely 10 minutes into my hour-long ride on the district line, I began to feel restless. Beyond intensely but subtly analysing my fellow passengers, there was little to keep my listless, hungover mind distracted. Sweating in the waiter's turquoise polo shirt, I self-consciously swigged from my LucasAid Sport. A walk of shame feels much more shameful when you're doing it without Kim Petra's slut pop to spur you on. So I twiddled my thumbs and tried not to think about how bad I must have smelt until I reached my destination. I was reunited with my best friend that my sexy waiter had been texting and we made our way to Shadwell Station to pick up my phone. I could have kissed that Uber driver when I saw him, sheepishly holding my phone out for me to take. I spared him my morning after breath and settled for a thank you, thank you, thank you. Sifting through the notifications that crowded my screen, I tried to discern whether those eligible bachelors had texted me. They hadn't. For Sarah Collins, who suffers with OCD, a holiday to Canada led to an elevated panic attack. I was alone on a chairlift almost 4,000 feet above sea level when the thought came. Jump. As my chair inched slowly up the mountain, my brain helpfully informed me that I was going to jump to my death, so I might as well get on with it. As I surveyed the magnificent Canadian peaks, I was gripped by a sense of doom. I was about to lose control of my body way up high. This was very bad. Very bad indeed. Over the past few months, I have become cocky about my mental state. I have peppered my columns with thinly veiled brags about mindfulness and box breathing, painting myself as a master of zen. I have been smug with my friends, dispensing unsolicited advice about how to live in the moment. Well, they'll all be relieved to read that, ironically, my elevated panic attack has brought me right back down to earth. Last year, my two best friends and long-time housemates, Lucy and Amy, rudely chose to move to the opposite side of the world. We decided to meet in Canada this summer. Lucy and I visited British Columbia before flying east to join Amy in Quebec. On the sunny day of the chairlift incident, I was a free agent as Lucy was visiting a relative. As I boarded the chairlift to the mountain's apex, I was in the kind of thoroughly good mood you only get when you have another week of holiday stretching out in front of you. My only care in the world was whether I could make it back down in time for the world-famous lumberjack show later on. I was feeling cheerful until about three minutes into the 15-minute ride, 
when I began to experience what has been dubbed the call of the void or the high place phenomenon, the urge to jump when facing a steep drop. It's a common experience that some scientists believe stems from the misinterpretation of the body's survival signal. They think that people may incorrectly attribute the increased anxiety that comes with the body's you're getting too close to the edge message as evidence of a death wish. At first I felt calm about it. Intrusive thoughts are the bread and butter of obsessive compulsive disorder, which I have. Dealing with the high place phenomenon felt like being asked as a professional athlete to do a park run. I once had an intrusive thought that I had a plank going out my back. So by comparison, this was small fry. But for some reason, on that particular day, the alchemy of being jet-lagged in an unfamiliar environment and on holiday is often when I finally allow myself to relax that my body responds to the stresses of daily life, led this common fear to balloon into a full-blown panic attack. I've had panic attacks before, but have never, if you'll pardon the pun, had one with such high stakes. I genuinely felt like my life was in danger, that any moment I would give in to the thought and launch myself into the abyss. I gripped tighter and tighter onto the metal bar in front of me, trying to protect myself from myself. There was still at least 10 minutes of the journey to go. How would I survive it? It had been so long since I'd fallen prey to a panic attack that I had to rack my brains to find the techniques to handle it. In the meantime, I started doing all the wrong things. By following my instincts and treating the thought as though it was real and dangerous, I was continuing the cycle of anxiety and communicating to myself that there was a real risk that I would lose control. Eventually, the calm voice of a mental health professional I'd seen many years ago drifted back to me. Your body's safety system can never harm you. Like floating when you're drowning, I needed to override my instincts and send the message to my brain through my behaviour that I wasn't truly in danger. It took everything in me in that moment to follow his advice. It took all my strength to relax my grip on the bar, to lie back in the chair. By doing so, I was showing my brain that it didn't need to panic about the thought that I would throw myself off the chairlift. Because a thought really is just a thought. For sports journalist Emma John, the baseball attitude to self-criticism on the pitch is also useful in daily life. Dear England, the play about Gareth Southgate's transformation of the eponymous national football team transfers to the West End this October. I saw it during its summer run on the South Bank. Joseph Fiennes looked and sounded so utterly like the England manager that he could stand in for him on the sidelines at their next game. The rapturous applause at the curtain call seemed as much for the real Southgate, his uplifting achievements, his empathy and compassion as the acting. Here was a story deeply concerned with failure and the athlete's natural fear of it. In the play, Southgate, who famously missed the penalty that put England out of Euro 1996, is determined that none of his young players should suffer the same mental agonies that he did. His resulting philosophy is a sea change from the traditional machismo of English football, and it baffles the suits in charge. Fail in order to win? Share your doubts? Fucking feelings? Asks the chairman of the FA incredulously. The performance I attended fell in the middle of the England cricket team's fight for the Ashes, and I couldn't help but note the resonances between the two. Ben Stokes's England side have, for the past two years, been playing an entirely new brand of cricket that has thrilled some and infuriated others. 
Basball, named in honour of the team's maverick coach, Brendan McCullum, gives players the freedom and autonomy to play the way they want to, rather than the way the situation demands. It also tells them to enjoy themselves over worrying about the outcome. In cricket, such an approach has a huge impact on the run of play, not least because it's a sport where securing a draw from a losing position is often as desirable as a win. Stokes's England aren't interested in drawing matches, however. They don't wish to be constrained by the acceptable, the sensible or the orthodox. They want to play unfettered by the fear of failure. As such, baseball can seem to fly in the face of received wisdom and, more significantly, challenge the very nature and purpose of competitive sport. Why play a game at all if you're not bothered about losing? This is the chief reason it has upset some fans. England's performances under Stokes and McCullum are as unpredictable as they are dazzlingly entertaining. Their team have pulled off some truly unlikely victories. They have also sacrificed strong positions for weaker ones. It's surely no coincidence that this novel approach has emerged at a time when concepts of self-care and self-expression have never been more highly valued. I think it's also notable that, over the past couple of years, therapists and psychologists alike have spoken and written extensively on the crippling pressure of the inner critic, the voice that can crowd our heads with negative thoughts about ourselves. The inner critic is integral to the human mind. It exists to protect us from the shame of failure. But if allowed to dominate, it can become one of our most powerful adversaries – undermining our self-esteem and sabotaging all our efforts before we've begun. Any number of recent self-help books have been published on how to quiet, calm, conquer or even embrace our inner critic. What Southgate and Stokes alike have been doing is to apply that concept in the sporting environment. Personally, I couldn't be more grateful to either of them. I'm not immune to being irritated by baseball. As a long-time England cricket fan, I still have kittens when their captain does seemingly nonsensical things, like getting out to an unnecessarily risky shot, or declaring the innings with his best batter still at the crease. But where most professional sporting mantras are intimidatingly unattainable, faster, higher, stronger, and other things you'll never be, this one is as liberating as it is inspiring. Go out and live life the way that suits you best. Oh, and don't give yourself such a hard time about it. As someone whose inner critic is very noisy indeed, that's a message I can never hear enough. And finally, writer and sex worker Tilly Lawless questions whether sex work has made her asexual. I'm on top of a podium at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, looking across the dance floor of a club while the sun shines down on me when I feel horny for the first time in a long time. Convenient, because I'm in a club with dark rooms where you can have sex on the premises. Inconvenient, because there's no one here that I actually want to fuck. As I described the moment to a friend afterwards, I realised that it wasn't seeing other people half naked and making out with each other that set me off. It was feeling like I was the hottest person in the club. It was feeling into myself. The podium is the perfect momentary ego boost. Everyone gazes up at you as you dance, slightly out of reach and knowingly unattainable. 
Most of the time I like to feel anonymous in a club, to pass through the crowd unnoticed and disappear in the mass of bodies. But when I feel particularly powerful in myself, I'll invite the stares of others by wearing heels or climbing onto a higher vantage point. The fact that I felt aroused in that moment, something I haven't felt in ages, makes me wonder if I'm autosexual, if I'm sexually attracted to myself. It is true that I have to feel hot in order to feel horny, which is a form of self-appreciation. But I realised that what I was really getting off on was other people getting off on me, the imagined desiring gaze. I've read feminist theory about how women live under a constant male gaze, the one that they've internalised. I think I'm living under a constant female gaze. My imagined desirer and observer is a woman. How will I appear to a dyke I want to fuck right now? I contemplate, as I do anything that requires incidental nudity, such as cleaning my house naked or stepping into the shower. The only time that I'm catering to a male gaze is when I wonder if my outfit will go down well with the gaze at a party, or if this dress that I'm wearing will get me booked at the brothel. For long periods of my adult life, I have wondered if sex work has made me asexual, that rather than being touch-starved, I have been overtouched. I sometimes worry that I have experienced an excess that has drained me till I have a sex drive deficit and can't imagine seeking out more of what I do so much of already for work. But perhaps it's more likely that asexuality is a spectrum that we can all move in and out of across our lives. Trying to regain my sex drive has felt like a lost cause. I've worked so much and for so long that maybe a sex drive is something that I don't even really need to regain. I'm not lacking anything if I don't have a craving for sex, because I still get fun and satisfaction from it. I learned recently about spontaneous versus responsive sexual desire and realised that I've been without the former, but that doesn't affect my enjoyment of sex. I can't be bothered to seek it out, but once it starts, I'm often into it. Is feeling horny as I dance on a podium, revelling in my body and the regard of others, simply another expression of responsive desire? my own arousal precipitated by and in reaction to my assumption of the arousal of others. I've also let go of this idea that it's somehow sad to be having good sex at work if I'm not fucking anyone in my private life. I used to feel shame if I was only being satisfied by clients, as if I was compromising an innate part of me, my sexuality, by only engaging with it in circumstances where there was a financial incentive, not out of pure, uncorrupted sexual desire. These days I'm just grateful when my body feels pleasure that I can lose myself in. Aren't we lucky to even be feeling that? I had some hot bookings with women in my last few weeks of work in May and I'm glad of it. So what if it was a client that facilitated it? I so rarely have the energy to make these things happen myself. It's normal for me to go six months without sleeping with anyone in my personal life. I suppose, like with all things over time, I'm having to adjust my perception of myself. Okay, maybe I'm not the libidinous person I imagined myself to be, but I am sexual. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen now to hear more from our family of writers in October and tune into our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand now or go to our website, where you can read writing from Samira Shackle, Matt Dankona, Barry Eichengreen, and many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time.